0: Time now for the Sports Pen on ESPN Radio UP. Hi everybody, Tanner Hoops with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope your day is wonderful, and if not, we hope to make it a little better. we got plenty to talk about today. The NLCS is set. The Brewers know their opponent as of yesterday. A sweep, a drubbing, the first ever postseason cycle, and the potential that a playoff manager may not come back next season. All that occurring yesterday. But if you missed all of that, you were probably watching Drew Brees set NFL history. He becomes the NFL's all-time passer last night, and he does it with a 62-yard touchdown pass in the second quarter of a drubbing 43-19. to Brees finished the night 26-29 of 29 for 363 yards, threw for three scores, At 39 years old, Breeze becomes the NFL's all-time leading passer. The career mark now stands at 72,102 yards, surpassing Peyton Manning's previous mark. Next up, Breeze attempts to become just the fourth NFL quarterback to throw for 500 career touchdown passes. Tom Brady joined the club on Thursday in their victory over the Colts. Breeze sits with 499, looking to join the company of Brady, Manning, and Brett Favre.
1: Breeze, what open, what? And Smith, what a way to do it! There's only one word that comes to mind greatness. Right there, right now, that moment.
0: Here's the thing about it. I'm not only happy we got to witness NFL history last night, I'm happy that it happened to a guy like Drew Brees. Drew Brees is a guy that does the game the right way. He does life the right way. You saw his family, his children there on the sidelines supporting him. He's a good guy, a hard-working guy. He's earned everything that he's accomplished. People said six-foot quarterback coming out of Purdue had no place in the NFL, never would have made it. Now he's the all-time leading passer. With all the struggles and scandals that surround athletes nowadays, we've never had to worry about that with Drew Brees. He's been a great guy on the field, off the field, he deserves his place in NFL history, and don't get me wrong, there are some not-so-good guys who deserve their place in NFL history for what they've done on the field, but you're more happy for a guy like this when he can do it and be who he is off the field.
2: At the end of the day, it was just, I'm just going to focus on one play at a time, great execution, focus on winning the game, and if it happens, it happens, and I guess the way that it happened, I don't think you could have drawn it up any better. You know, two-minute drive, touchdown pass to, to Traquan Smith, and then... We're able to actually enjoy it with the fans, enjoy it with my teammates, enjoy it with my family on the sideline and just unbelievable.
0: Part of Breeze's post-game presser from last evening, but take a listen to who he says
2: are a couple of his biggest motivators. My kids motivate me to be better because when I throw the ball to my son Callen on the couch, he always tells me I'm not throwing it in the right place, don't you Callen? say, come on dad, not here, I want it here, you know, he wants like the outstretched one handed catch on the couch. So. You know, they're they're my toughest critics, you know, so they they keep me honest.
0: Brees started his career in San Diego, but nearly changed the landscape of NFL and college football for years to come in the mid-2000s when he nearly went to play for the Miami Dolphins and head coach Nick Saban. Deal didn't work out. Saban ended up going to Alabama. He has built a dynasty there, and Drew Brees has done pretty good for himself in the city of New Orleans. He loves these fans, and he was happy to be able to break the record in front of them.
2: You obviously hope that this opportunity comes in front of our home fans and i mean no greater stage to do it than on monday night football in new orleans in the dome Um, as many incredible moments as, as we've had as a team here in this dome especially on monday night moments to be able to share this with them i mean they are such a huge part of this the bond between our team and our fan base is unlike any other in professional sports And you could feel their energy at all times, their passion, their emotion. And, you know, we feed off of that. But they deserve this more than anybody.
0: Drew has provided consistency, stability, and then some. Plenty of success to go with it since becoming the starting quarterback of the New Orleans Saints in 2006. He loves the fans, and the fans there love him back. Here's Monday Night Football analyst Booger McFarlane.
1: In order to paint the picture, I think we have to go back to Hurricane Katrina. It's a city that needed help. Drew Brees was a quarterback who needed a home and the two needed each other. They married together and throughout this long journey between New Orleans and Sean Payton and Drew Brees, they've grown together, they've rehabbed together, both the city and Drew Brees.
0: Let's digest that for a little bit. Brees came in while New Orleans was still recovering from the after effects of Hurricane Katrina. He not only provided excellence on the field, but off of it, he was out there helping the city, helping rebuild, Giving the fans something to look forward to, promise, hope. It goes well beyond football. You can add your name into every record book in history. It might not be enough. But what Breeze is doing off the field, providing hope, support, love to a city. And he's done that for years now. That's what New Orleans fans will remember more than the greatness that we watched last night. Here's Saints head coach Sean Payton. To be honest with you, an alert throw,
1: it wouldn't be first in the progression, but he felt the coverage come off and uh, made the right decision. But it wasn't where we saw the ball going in in its design on a Tuesday night at midnight, Um, and that's a credit to him.
0: Congratulations to Drew Brees, truly one of the NFL's all-time greats. He etches his name in NFL immortality last night. Well, week five is over in the NFL. Let's take a look at how the playoff picture looks way too early. The division leaders after five weeks, the LA Rams, they're 5-0. and They're leading the West, and they're the top overall seed in the NFC. Number two seed, the New Orleans Saints. 4-1, and one, they lead the South, followed by the Chicago Bears at 3-1. and one. How about the NFC East? The leaders 2-2. Two and two. No plus 500 team in that division. Washington. Comes in at two and two. So those are the four division leaders in the NFC after five weeks. Los Angeles, New Orleans, Chicago, and Washington. The two wild card teams as it stands right now. Carolina at three and one. Tampa Bay at two and two. On the outside looking in. Green Bay and Minnesota. Both two, two, and one. They're the first two teams out. Followed by Seattle, Dallas, Detroit, and Philadelphia. All two and three. And then four, one, and four teams: Atlanta, Arizona, San Francisco, and the New York Giants. So that's how the playoff picture looks in the NFC. Again, way too early. We're only in Week Five, but still fun to break it down and see where we stand by the end of the year. How about in the AFC? Kansas City five and zero, leading the West. They're the top overall seed in the AFC. Cincinnati is four and one. Is the North theirs this season? New England's three and two. Tennessee's three and two. They both lead their divisions. They round out the top four. Top two wild card teams. There's a four way tie. The Los Angeles Chargers, Baltimore Ravens, Miami Dolphins, Jacksonville Jaguars are all three and two. Then guess who's next up? Cleveland Browns. Yeah. The Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers are both two, two and one. Buffalo, Houston, the New York Jets, and Denver are all two and three. Oakland and Indianapolis are one and four. So we don't have any winless teams in pro football this year. That's all right, that's all right. We got a couple undefeated left, and they play what next month? Again, way too early to speculate. A lot can happen until we roll around to December, January, and we get ready for the postseason. A hey, fantasy owners of Jay Ajayi might want to drop him. I yeah, feel bad for a guy like that. Find out he has a torn ACL. His season is done. Tough to see. It's gonna hurt the Eagles plenty. A team that has been struggling coming out of the gate, but. I tell you what is going the Eagles' way, though. They rework Fletcher Cox's deal, creating a little more cap space. They say they're not pursuing Le'Veon Bell. But really? You're not even thinking about it? Your RB1 just went down with the torn ACL, and you're not thinking about going after one of the best backs in football? Despite making cap space that would allow you to go after him? Doug Peterson's playing it close to the bell. I get it. I get it. That's all right. Going out west, Sean McVay says he is optimistic about Cooper Cump and Brandon Cooks returning for week six. Both of them had to leave last week's game after entering concussion protocol for concussion symptoms. They have both come out symptom free. Although keep in mind, Cooks has struggled with concussions before. He suffered one earlier this year in the Super Bowl against Philadelphia. He's only 25 years old. This was very close to being his second in nine months. That's tough to come back from. I don't care who you are. Speaking of coming back, how about Mark Ingram announces his return to the field last night with a big touchdown run to set up the scoring for New Orleans in the first quarter. Didn't want to lose track of that and everything surrounding Drew Brees last night, but Mark Ingram showing the Saints may have a running game back and better than ever. At least a running game that doesn't limit itself to just Taysom Hill. If T.J. Yeldon is a free agent, your fantasy league might want to pick him up this week. Leonard Fournette will not be returning to the field this week against the Cowboys. He's still dealing with a lingering hamstring injury. Yeldon is a more than capable backup, and he's been taking on the load. When Fournette's been out of the lineup, expect a big game from him this weekend. He tries to go up against a Cowboy defense that, safe to say, has struggled as of late. The New York Giants have announced that they are letting go of tackle Eric Flowers if he's not able to be traded. Well, it's been a disaster since they brought him in. A former first-round pick, number nine overall, and he has just been a disaster. He looks so good at the University of Miami. He's been one of the biggest draft disappointments the Giants have had in a long time. It just hasn't worked out. and just no place to put him. They've tried everything. They've tried putting him in on the right side of the line. They've tried putting him on the left side of the line. Just not a good fit anywhere it seems. Eric Flowers and the Giants cutting ties. How about we go a little more local? It is Tuesday. And Mike McCarthy and Mason Crosby both still have their jobs amid speculation. Mike McCarthy coming out in support of his kicker saying, I still believe in Mason Crosby. I stand by him. I like that move. I think if anybody's gonna go first, it's McCarthy. Mason Crosby has done so much for the franchise, no reason to let him go after one bad game. If it becomes a consistent problem, if this keeps going on week to week, then yeah, you start thinking about getting a change a kicker. But not now. Mason Crosby is still way too valuable to this team and in this league. He's still got some big kicks to make for the Packers, make no mistake. Here's the biggest headline of the weekend that nobody is talking about. Rookie quarterbacks over the weekend. The four rookie quarterbacks who started this weekend, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, and Josh Allen, they led their teams to victory, all four of them. They went 4-0 over the weekend. First time in the Super Bowl era that four rookie quarterbacks have done that. Have gone 4-0 in the same week. Baker Mayfield, the Browns, Sam Darnold in the Jets, Josh Rosen in the Cardinals, and Josh Allen in the Bills. All of them winners this weekend. First time ever, at least in the Super Bowl era, that four rookie quarterbacks have gone 4-0 in the same week. Why is nobody talking about this? Everybody talked about how good this quarterback draft class was, and of course they are. But now we're starting to see these guys produce at a higher level than a lot of people anticipated for where they are. Patrick Mahomes is not a rookie, but it's his first year as a true starter. We're seeing some of the best young quarterbacks in the game take the field right now. Baker Mayfield is turning the culture around in Cleveland. When we went through the standings, he is right outside qualifying for the playoff spot. And again, I know there's still 11 games to go, but the Browns are in uncharted territory. They have a better record than about half the league right now. The Arizona Cardinals make the change at quarterback. They bench the veteran Sam Bradford. Josh Rosen comes in, leads them to their first win of the season. The Buffalo Bills look just horrible early on. Josh Allen comes in, now they have a couple of wins. And Sam Darnold, how about the job he's done over in New York? They thumped the Denver Broncos on Sunday. They just thumped them. They didn't even target Quincy and Unwa, didn't have to. And of course, you can't say enough about Patrick Mahomes and the job he's been able to do, especially now that the defense, at least last Sunday, decided to come up and show out for him once. You can make the case that Jared Goff can be somewhat aligned into that category i know he's not a rookie he's not even a first year starter but he's a guy that's still young still in his prime and he's continuing to get better we're seeing a great class of young quarterbacks in the nfl right now really fun to watch and it's only going to get better with that, we owe you a timeout. We'll take it right now. We'll come back. We have more to break down. We'll get into a little baseball on the other side of this break. You're listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP.
3: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, the Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP
0: app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Don't forget the Pigskin Payday is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only available at the Casino in Barrigate and Marquette. Tanner Hoops with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope your Tuesday's going well, and if not, we're trying to fix that. We get into talking about a little bit of baseball. We know who the Milwaukee Brewers will be playing in the NLCS starting this Friday, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Familiar territory for LA, not so much for Milwaukee. The Brewers back to the NLCS for the first time since 2011. The Dodgers are there for the third time in as many years. Will this be the year that they can finally crown themselves the kings of Major League Baseball? They have been waiting so long since 1988. The Brewers have been waiting even longer. They've never done it. They're looking to bring that first ever championship to the city of Milwaukee. Dating back to the final week of the regular season, the Brewers have won 11 straight games to reach this point. There is no hotter team in baseball right now. Even the Rockies have been playing pretty good baseball, and the Brew Crew swept them. Dodgers had a little trouble getting by Atlanta, but they end up winning in four games. So now the two square off, and the Brewers get home field advantage in the best of seven series. Games one and two, Friday and Saturday, in Milwaukee. Let's go back and recap the Dodgers' 6-2 victory last night. Manny Machado with an RBI double in the top of the first gave the Dodgers an early lead. But Kurt Suzuki with a two-run single in the home half of the fourth put Atlanta up 2-1. From there, though, it was all Dodgers. They score five unanswered. A couple of runs come across in the sixth. David Freese, a two-run single to center field. And an inning later, Manny Machado a three-run home run bringing in Max Muncie and Justin Turner. 6-2. The Dodgers take it, and they punch their ticket to the NLCS. It's going to be a fun one. These are two teams that have had different franchise histories. The Dodgers have been storied successful, albeit that ring has been elusive. The Brewers are turning into what the Minnesota Twins were in the mid-2000s. They're becoming the darlings of the small market, a team that's never won it in franchise history. Chance to do so this year. So what can we look forward to? in this best of seven series. Here's Buster only giving us his preview.
4: The Brewers, really dangerous team because of how well they were playing, because they get the best player in the National League right now, Christian Yelich, and how hot he's been, the way they're using their bullpen. And we've seen teams in recent years win with average to mediocre starting pitching and great bullpens, and that'll be an advantage. And it's fascinating to me that in just one year, the Dodgers have really changed. Last year, if you remember, in the postseason, uh, Dave Roberts managed very aggressively with his bullpen. You know, famously in game two, Rich Hill, four dominant innings, takes him out to bring in Kenta Maeda. This year, because of questions in their bullpen, they're very reliant on their starting pitching, and they've got excellent starting pitching. I, I'm picking Milwaukee
0: you hear that brew crew nation buster only's on your side one more time
4: i'm picking milwaukee i'm picking milwaukee i'm picking milwaukee
0: buster only is taking milwaukee and i love his reasoning for it you have a great dodger starting pitching staff going up against a great milwaukee bullpen i said a few days ago on the show is how i hate the opener strategy oakland shouldn't have tried it in the wild card game Craig Council's been doing something similar to it. He calls it the initial outgetter, not the opener. Same thing. But Craig Council knows that his strength is in his bullpen. He knows that he doesn't have the starters to compete with a team like Los Angeles. So he gets a few good innings out of some guys to set them up for the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. And if the Brewers have a lead by then, they're going to win. They're going to win because that bullpen is more reliable than anybody in the Dodgers rotation has been outside of maybe Walker Buehler giving them seven innings. Offensively, both teams are loaded. There's all kinds of firepower that's not going to be taken the field every day. And you need that in the National League. You need to be able to pull superstar-quality players off of your bench, come in and hit for the pitcher in a crucial spot. Both these teams can do that, probably better than anybody that's left in the playoffs. These are the two most talented rosters left, and they get the chance to square off for the National League pennant. And while the Brewers may be the underdog to everybody who wasn't associated with the franchise, it's starting to get the attention of everybody else in the league. Certainly got Yaciel Puig's attention.
3: I don't lie. I see you, Atlanta. I told you. Three, eight more to go, baby. I, LA. Who, who's coming now? Who's coming? Me walking. I see you, me walking. That baby park. I, I see you there.
0: <laughs> Yasiel calling out the Brewers in only a way that Yasiel Puig can. This is going to be a fun series. It's two teams that aren't necessarily rivals. They have respect for each other. But you know what they're both chasing. And they both know what's at stake. And they're not afraid to get a little heated if need be. Don't forget that we will be covering the Brewers' postseason games here on ESPN-UP. Friday night, we have high school football. Friday night, we've got high school football. Saturday, we will switch back to our coverage of Milwaukee baseball. And we have game two from Miller Park, Saturday against the Dodgers. Well, let's switch over to the American League and what happened over in the ALDS yesterday. A pair of game threes, Houston puts a thump. On the Cleveland Indians, they win 11-3 and sweep that three-game series. They do it at progressive field, no less. So the Houston Astros are back on to the ALCS. Another thumping yesterday, this time at Yankee Stadium, Boston, 16-1. They beat the Yankees. Beat them bad. Nathan Avoli, how about the game he turned in? Seven innings of five-hit baseball. Allowed one run. He pitched a gem. I'm starting to think Luis Severino is not a very good postseason pitcher. Last night he allowed six runs on seven hits in three innings of work. He wasn't impressive in the wild card game when only about four innings was not impressive in the wild card game last year against Minnesota. That's for sure. Luis Severino is just not showing that he's capable of the big time stage. Now the Yankees have their backs against the wall this evening. eight oh seven first first pitch. As they host the Red Sox in game four of the series, CeCe Sabathia, 9-7 and seven record, 365 ERA, goes for the Yanks. 153 innings, 140 strikeouts. That number's been working well for him. Rick Porcello, 17-game winner, goes for the Bow Sox. ERA is high at 428. He has struck out 190 and 191 and one-third innings of work. Boston with a chance to punch their ticket to the ALCS with a victory tonight over their arch rival, the New York Yankees. Not to be lost in the excitement of what happened last night, but Brock Holt hit for the cycle. First time ever that a Major League Baseball player has hit for the cycle in the postseason. That surprised me. Did that surprise you? Brock Holt becomes the first to do it in 118 years. We have had some excellent players, some excellent postseason series go through baseball during that time. That's shocking to me that Brock Holt is the first one to do it. Takes 118 years, but he does it nonetheless. He does it in Yankee Stadium against New York. Couldn't work out much better if you're a Bo Sox diehard.
3: Here's a swing and a drive. Right field on its way, and it's gone. And he's hit for the cycle. How about that? Off the catcher, Brock Holt, over the right field wall. A single, a double, a triple and now a homer, and he has done it.
0: Let's circle back to Luis Severino. There has been speculation that Severino did not have enough time to warm up because the Yankees mismanaged how they wanted to warm up their pitching staff. Aaron Boone doesn't think so. In fact, he's outright denying it. CBS was making a big deal that that Seve only had eight minutes to warm up. I'm, are you saying they were they're wrong?
2: Yeah, I'm not saying. I'm saying he had his. He had, he had plenty of warm-up. He had, he had what he intended to go down there and get done. And, and Larry said he was able to get through his, his normal routine where he faces a couple hitters and everything, so it wasn't an issue.
0: Listen, I've seen Severino pitch in the postseason. It doesn't matter if he had eight or 80 minutes to warm up. He's not accustomed to the big game. He has not shown postseason success as a pitcher. As good as he is, as good as he is in the regular season, postseason's a different animal. He just hadn't shown he can win there. He struggled against Minnesota in last year's wild card, struggled against the A's this year in the wild card, struggled against Boston last night. He just got flat out out outdueled by Nathan Avaldi.
2: He's been tough on us all year. And he, you know, once he got the lead, he just continued to pound the strike zone. You know, the cutter was a factor. He mixed in some breaking balls and some splits, but was able to locate and elevate his, his four-seam fastball. It seemed like he mixed in some two-seamers as well, which isn't something he does a lot of. It seemed like that anyway from, from the side. But, you know, he once again was, was an issue for us.
0: So now the Yankee season rests on the left arm of Carlston Charles Sabathia. How are his teammates feeling about the veteran getting the ball tonight? Aaron Judge has all the confidence in the world in him.
2: Yeah, CeCe's our guy. He's been in this situation before. You know, he pitched game five for us in Cleveland last year and you know put out a good strong outing for us. So our know, he's our guy. You know, he's he's who I want in the mound. you know, in a situation like this.
0: Once again, 807 first pitch tonight. Sabathia goes up against Rick Porcello. Red Sox need a win and they are on to the ALCS. The Yankees need to win and force a winner take all game five in Boston. Winner moves on to the ALCS where they will face the Houston Astros. And speaking of the defending World Series champs, the Houston Astros find themselves in the American League Championship Series once again. They sweep the Indians, culminating an 11-3 victory in Game 3 at Progressive Field yesterday. So now where does this leave Cleveland? They're a team that has won the American League Central the last three years. They're consistently in the playoffs. They're not going too far in it anymore. They made the World Series, came up one game shy two years ago, of course, when the Cubs came back from a 3-1 series deficit. But where does this leave Terry Francona? A lot of Indians fans are speculating that there may be a change in leadership. Terry Francona may be on his way out. I tell you this much, if the Indians make that move, it would be an atrocious mistake. Getting rid of Terry Francona would be an atrocious mistake. You got to think about where this franchise was. You want to go back to the Eric Wedge days? Terry Francona has given you a consistent level of success. Did Cleveland fans really expect to get by Houston in this year's postseason? Cleveland was not good enough to do it. The Astros are far and away the most talented team left in the American League. They will go on to the World Series and challenge the Brewers. My World Series prediction still looks pretty good. There was no way Cleveland was getting by them. Look at Cleveland's team. Corey Kluber, Carlos Carrasco, Mike Clevenger. All those guys are great pitchers, but what have they done to prove that they can be good in the postseason? Nothing. They haven't proven that they're good postseason pitchers. Or like Luis Severino we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago. The Indians have a lot of talent on that team, make no mistake. And they're a good enough team where they should be winning division titles every year like they are. But the postseason is a whole different animal. The Indians have great starting pitching, but that doesn't always translate into October. For whatever reason, I don't know if the stage gets to them or what, but it doesn't and it didn't this year. They have two top-tier hitters with guys like Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. Beyond them, look at their cast. Josh Donaldson is good, but it's not 2014. He's not getting any younger or healthier. He's not at his peak anymore. He's on his way down. Edwin Encarnacion certainly not getting younger. Lonnie Chisenhall was hurt. Melky Cabrera certainly not what he used to be. Jan Gomes had a terrible year. Got replaced by Roberto Perez behind the plate. Jason Kibniss, he's been up and down. Michael Brantley, when he's healthy, he's awesome. But keeping him healthy and getting him back to where he used to be, that's the trick. Cleveland did what they were supposed to with the roster they had this year. They won a weak American League Central Division, but there was no way they were going to get by Houston. I'm not surprised by the sweep. And if Indian fans think that they would do better with a different manager, they're dead wrong. Dead wrong. Nobody could have gotten them past the Houston Astros this year. Terry Francona is managing with the level of talent that he has. I'm not saying that Tito is the answer if they want to win a World Series in the near future. I don't think they'll win it next year with Tito. But they're not going to go any farther without him. Cleveland won a weak division this year. That's how they got in the playoffs. They would have been rivaled by Tampa Bay for a wild card spot. Oakland, I believe, would have given Houston a better series. It's not to say Cleveland's bad, but they weren't tested this year. They got to cruise into the postseason. They knew about a month and a half in advance that nobody in their division going to steal a spot from them. They weren't playing meaningful games. Their last meaningful game was in, what, mid-June. They were so lackadaisical entering the postseason. And yeah, I know you want to get your pitchers rest while you've got the time. You know you clinched. But they had about two months to do that. Took the edge away from those guys. No wonder they got swept by Houston. You can blame some of that on Tito, no doubt, but all I'm saying is you're not going to get better with somebody else at the helm. Remember last year when Cleveland won over 100 games? They finished 17 games ahead of Minnesota, who was second place in the AL Central. Minnesota was a playoff team too last year, made the wild card game as the two wild card seed. This year, Minnesota was six under 500, did not make the playoffs. Cleveland still won the division but they finished only 13 games ahead of Minnesota. Last year, 17, when they were both playoff teams. This year, Minnesota's a below 500 team. Cleveland was only 13 games ahead of Minnesota in the standings. I mean, what does that tell you? Got to give Tito some tools. So Blaine can't totally fall on him. Certainly, there are ways he could have managed this year better, but getting rid of him is not going to make Cleveland better this offseason. We've got more coming up for you after this. You're listening to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP.
3: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, the Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the
0: ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Don't forget, Pigskin Payday is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only available at Jibway Casino in Baraga and Marquette very special guest with us to kick off the second half of today's Sports Pen. We're joined now by Westwood High School Athletic Director John Beckman. Got some news coming up for this Friday. Originally scheduled was Westwood's senior night taking on Gogebic, and uh, unfortunately, the situation's worked out where Gogebic has been forced to forfeit the game due to lack of players, player safety, what have you. And Westwood has picked up their sixth victory of the year. It's the second time it's happened by forfeit. So the Pats are officially playoff bound for the second straight season. John, it may not be the way that we were hoping for it, but nonetheless, it's how everything worked out. Tell me a little about uh, how everything's transpired for this Friday.
1: Well, you know, they they uh, suffered a couple of injuries last week versus Nagani. And they're a very uh, young team in Gogebic. And they uh, decided that uh, for their own safety and making sure that um, they can continue with their program, that they would uh, prefer to play a JV game this week rather than um, the varsity game. And, of course, we never want to take a forfeit. Um, You know, high school kids, they want to play football. They don't want to sit around and watch football. But at the same time, um, we understand that... uh, you know, other programs go through different things. And, uh, you know, we'll take the we'll take the forfeit victory and uh, move on to Nagani.
0: Well, you get into the postseason with it as well. Officially the sixth win for Westwood. It was supposed to be senior night for the guys. And you mentioned the JV game that's uh, coming up. So the JV game has been moved to 7 o'clock Friday night when the varsity was going to be scheduled. You'll still be able to have the senior night activities. Tell me a little about what's going to happen uh, for the varsity guys while they're watching the JV play
1: well it's I guess it's a little less stressful inevitably for the for the varsity guys and the coaches and everybody else because senior night takes away from you know your pre-game warm-up and things like that it's just one one more thing added on and of course now with us playing the JV game instead of the varsity game they're going to uh, be relaxed and Um, Not have to worry about. I got to hustle up. I got to get done with this. I got to get into the locker room and and move on. So you know what? We'll we'll move on with all of our activities. You know, we've got a tailgate scheduled and we've got all the senior night, um, not just for football, but for for cross country and for dance and for cheerleading and for girls tennis. Um, So all of those people are still going to be able to be recognized, and uh, so i um, very fortunate that Gogebic agreed to play it on Friday night so that we didn't have to change everything around that we were going to do.
0: Well, tell me a little about uh, the whole JV uh, scene, what's going on here. Uh, second time that we've gotten to cover them on ESPN-UP with a varsity forfeit. We're excited for it again but they really get the opportunity to go under Friday Night Lights, get a taste of the varsity experience, have the whole senior uh, festivities, what have you, around them, and then the tailgate, I mean, it, it, are you starting to get the kind of the vibe in the school that, you know, these kids are excited, they're feeling like they're at the big level?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's good for those kids too, you know, anytime we can keep kids excited about playing football and uh, um, put, on a, put on a little show for them and things like that, that that's important, and you know, it doesn't hurt that our JV team has had quite a bit of success this year as well, and uh, you know they're not—they're no slouch or anything like that. So they'll—they'll they'll be fine, and uh, you know it's—it's it's just a best-case scenario for something that uh, we didn't want to happen—is—is is what we're dealing with.
0: Well, and you get the varsity a little extra time to rest up. I know they had uh, the Manistique forfeit some time to recover from some injuries, and they're pretty well healthy now, but. Uh, a little bit of chance to recover, get ready for Nagani, and then playoffs after, where the team is uh, going on for the second straight year. Tell me about the growth that you've seen in the football program here, making it back-to-back seasons.
1: Yeah, you know, Coach Sergio has done a great job um, making sure that uh, football and certainly the conditioning program and all the off-season work that we do um, that it's important to these kids. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm I'm very close to. Uh, the program with, uh, with my sons being involved and everything like that. And, uh, you know, we can't take away from the fact that we just have a really nice, uh, group of athletes going through our, uh, going through our high school right now. And, um, it lends itself to the things that you're talking about, getting to the playoffs. Um, you know, actually it's three out of the last four for us, and that's the first time that's happened in, uh, Westwood history. So this, this senior class certainly has, um, a lot of great things to hang their hat on uh, that they're going to leave as a legacy um, when they're finished playing football at Westwood High School.
0: Tell me about some of the ways that they've reached down maybe to the JV and the lower levels of football. and you know, Obviously, they're changing the culture with the success they had, but are you noticing the guys uh, start to reach down, lead the younger ones along?
1: Our, our football team does a lot in that they run a, uh, they run a flag football program on Saturday mornings for the elementary kids. And that's run specifically by our uh, high school football team. You know, the coaches kind of stand back and let uh, the players become coaches for that time. And they come to the elementary school and they read books and they wear their jersey and they uh, make sure that uh, everybody in our district um, knows that, hey, we want to wear that red, white, and blue someday. So um, they've done a great job in um, reaching out to our lower levels and making sure everybody's excited about Uh, westwood football moving forward
0: once again we're talking with westwood high school athletic director john beckman the game has been forfeited friday night the varsity contest westwood improves to six and two and it's officially eligible for the michigan high school playoffs for a second straight year three out of the last four uh, there will be a junior varsity game as the show goes on seven o'clock kickoff we have the coverage here on espn up 6.30 is the pregame. John, as always, thanks so much for taking the time. Always nice talking to you. We look forward to seeing you on Friday. All right. Thanks, Tanner. Thanks again to John Beckman. Kind enough to give us the lowdown on what's going on at Westwood High School coming up this weekend. To recap, Go Gibbick has forfeited the Friday night football game due to lack of players. They suffered a few injuries at Nagani. They will not be sending their varsity team over instead. We have the JV game Friday night. It's going to be treated like a varsity game, including the fact that ESPN UP will be there with a play by play broadcast. Here, myself and Dave Bowes on the call. ESPN UP 630 pregame show 7 o'clock kickoff on ESPN UP AM and FM and online with the ESPN mobile app. If you have not already, be sure to download our mobile app. You can get live broadcast. You can hear that game live. You can hear the Brewers games live when we're airing them, including Saturday. You can hear archived broadcast on demand, including the Sports Pen, including Westwood Patriot Athletics, including our Friday and Saturday coaches shows. You can get linked with us on social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, what have you. Get connected with us. We love getting connected with you. We appreciate your listenership, and we want it to show. Well, speaking of Westwood High School, pretty good week last week for them. Had some tennis that was going on in the area, and Westwood has always wonderful job with the UP Division II Tennis Tournament. Nagani won the Division I title. Congratulations to the Miners. Westwood took the Division Two title. In Division Two, we look at the all-UP tennis team. Katerina Serbentos of West Iron County Earned Player of the Year honors. Eli Langness of Ishpeming was the D2 All-UP Coach of the Year. The All-State Division II selections. The aforementioned Servantas of West Iron County joined by teammates Tori Bosiek and Eden Golaher. Then Sailor Swartout and Claire Montgrain of Iron Mountain join her as well. How about Division II All-UP first-team singles? A couple of Westwood Patriots. Uh, Tessa Lease along with Madeline Kosky. Both of them make All-UP first-team first-team singles, Madeline Koski and Tessa Lease. Also on the list, Madison Pruitt of Ishpeming, Servantos aforementioned, along with Jordan Stoner of Iron Mountain, Izzy Hagenboom from West Iron County making the list as well. Honorable mention, Division II UP singles, Taylor Jansky out of Gwynn is on the list, along with Zyda Legallo from Ironwood. A pair of Munising players, Taylor Downs and Lily Gendron, from Westwood, Kylie Larmore. Kylie Larmore makes it on for the Patriots. Colby Laturi from West Iron County. Ishpeming sends Sophie Hooper. And Iron Mountain lands Macy McCormick on the honorable mention D2 singles list. How about all-UP first-team doubles from last week's girls' tennis tournament? Goliher and Bosiak, aforementioned from West Iron County, are on the list, along with Swartout and Mottgrain from Iron Mountain. A pair of Westwood Patriots on there, Caitlin Antilla and Carly Patrone, both make the list. West Iron County with Emily Malmquist and Emily Nelson. And finally, Ishpeming sends Riley Ring and Corey Cocola. They end up making the list. Honorable mention, all Division II UP doubles. From Gwen, Katie LaRock and Raina Humphrey. From Ironwood, Haley Jaraki and Grace Grew. From Munising, Michaela McNally-Palmer and Abby Hayes. And a pair of Westwood doubles teams, Haley Matila and Aubrey Magnuson, along with Ellie Miller, and Megan Johnson. Congratulations once again to all participants. That is the results from last week's Division Two All Upper Peninsula Tennis Tournament. Congratulations again Westwood Girls the champions in their division, Division Two, along with Nagani who won in Division One. Good tennis up here in the UP. So as mentioned, with the victory by forfeit this weekend, the Westwood Boys football team is on to the postseason for the second straight season. As you heard John Beckman mention, the third time in the last four years. Congratulations once again, Coach Sergila and the guys. They are moving on and they will be playing somewhere October 26th. The latest projections once again have Westwood visiting Calumet. That was a week three matchup in the regular season. It was a great one as well. Calumet winning 14-12. to They currently sit in the driver's seat as far as controlling their own destiny in the West Westpac Division A. Westwood, you know, would love another chance at getting revenge. They might have their shot when it matters most when it comes to the postseason. Ishpeming is in the postseason as well. We know that, so we have two area teams guaranteed to go. Then you get a few on the bubble. Gwynn. Nagani, and Marquette all still with chances to punch their tickets. This is a fun time of the year, ladies and gentlemen. Lots to be excited about this time of the year. We look forward to bringing you coverage of the postseason race all fall long. Be sure to tune in our Friday afternoon coaches show and our Saturday morning coaches show. Get caught up in all the analysis, hear from your favorite coaches, what have you. It's going to be great as we break it all down for you here on ESPN-UP. We owe you our last break. We'll take it now. We'll come back and finish this thing off. You're listening to ESPN-UP.
3: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP
4: app.
0: Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Don't forget, Pigskin Payday is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize, only available at Ojibwe Casino in Barraga and Marquette. Well, let me go back and touch on something I said earlier in the show. I said that if you're a fantasy football owner and you're looking for a sleeper running back, TJ Yeldon might be the move. That would be because Leonard Fournette has been ruled out for this week's game against the Cowboys, still dealing with his hamstring injury. Well, the Jaguars may not be entirely sold on T.J. Yeldon because they're bringing in Jamal Charles. The former Kansas City Chief is being brought in. Jacksonville needs some help offensively right now. They are a struggling offense. They need to do something to try and re-spark themselves. They didn't like what they got out of the team on Sunday, and they shouldn't have. They were held to 14 points by a really bad Kansas City Chiefs defense. That Chiefs defense is not good. They're going to beat you because they outscore you 40-35. to They're not supposed to hold a team down like that. They did to Jacksonville, and Jacksonville is ready to take matters into their own hands. So they're going out. So now they're going out to get Jamal Charles, a guy whose best football years certainly are behind him. But does he still have something to offer an NFL team? I think he does. I think he can be a contributor, certainly not like what he used to be. But in Jacksonville's case, he might fit right in with an offense like that. You couple that with the defense if they can find their mojo again? Jacksonville's just got to survive here for a couple of weeks. Get into the postseason. Once they're back and healthy, Jacksonville at full strength is a team that nobody wants anything to do with. You saw what they did in week two, taking down the Pats and Tom Brady. Jacksonville is a dangerous team, but they've got to survive these next few weeks, hope that Leonard Fournette can come back, and they can get back to full strength. They need that defense to show up, too. That is the calling card for that Jaguar team is their defense. Jalen Ramsey, less talk, more action. Hey, let's transition to hockey. Four games yesterday, three of them were day games. Maybe have something to do with it being Thanksgiving up in Canada. It's a good way to celebrate, even though there was only one Canadian team playing yesterday. The only night game involved the Red Wings. The Red Wings were over in Anaheim looking for their first win of the season. They were trying to do so against a Ducks team that was trying to start 3-0 and for the first time since they last won a cup back in 2007. Detroit got out to an early lead, 11-06 mark of the first period, and Tyler Bertuzzi scores his second goal of the season. He was assisted by Rasmussen and Nielsen, but... Hampus Lindholm ties the game up, 10-57 into period number two, his first of the year, before Detroit retakes the lead just about four minutes later. Darren Helm gets it to go through. It's his first goal of the season. However, a game-tying goal at the 8:29 mark in the third period by Jacob Silferberg survived a review, and the Ducks would force OT. So, the Red Wings get a point out of this. They go to overtime for the second time in the first three games this year. They go to a shootout. Each team misses on their first opportunity in the shootout, then Troy Terry buries it. Troy Terry gives his team a 1-0 lead in the shootout. Would anybody else go on to score in the shootout, Ben Roethlisberger? Nope. John Gibson stops all three Red Wing shooters. Thomas Vanek, Franz Nielsen, and Gustav Nyquist all fail to find the back of the net. As the Wings fall 3-2 in the shootout, Anaheim outshoots the Wings 27-21, including a 3-0 advantage in overtime, 10-5 in the third period. So the Wings fall to 0-1-2 on the season, first time since the 1991-1992 season Detroit has started with no wins in their first three games. Things go from bad to worse for the Wings, and you wonder how much longer Jeff Blaschel has left on his leash. Well, Detroit returns back home on Thursday to take on Toronto, then a four-game road trip at Boston, Montreal, Tampa Bay, and the Florida Panthers. Other NHL final scores from yesterday, Boston doubles up Ottawa 6-3, the Islanders blank the Sharks for nothing, and Buffalo 4-2 winners over Vegas. Looking at the NHL schedule for tonight, 7 o'clock puck drops, San Jose looking to bounce back as they visit Philadelphia. Another 7 o'clock game, Vancouver visits Carolina. Colorado is at Columbus, the third 7 o'clock matchup. Then at 8, Calgary visiting Nashville, Los Angeles is at Winnipeg. 8.30, Toronto visits Dallas to round out the slate of NHL games this evening. One college football game, 8 o'clock kickoff for Appalachian State visiting Arkansas State. The Mountaineers still with their only loss this season coming in week one to Penn State, a team they took to overtime. App State 3-1 in the year. Not to stray too far away from hockey, though, Pittsburgh Penguin goaltender Matt Murray has been diagnosed with a concussion, not the first time he's struggled with it. Unfortunate for him, unfortunate for Pittsburgh. Expect Casey DeSmith to be taking a load off of him. Maybe Tristan Jari is the next one called up from Wilkes-Barre-Scranton. Fortunate situation, though for a young man like Matt Murray struggle with concussions way too much for a guy who hasn't even reached his 24th birthday. I tell you what, last thing before we let you go, we turn it over to our weekly message from the MHSAA, the Michigan High School Athletic Association for their weekly podcast. Always like to hear that here over the Sports Pen on Tuesday afternoons. We take a listen to the MHSAA and what's going on this week in Michigan high school sports.
3: Looking to take the next step, what referees don't do, and the football trilogy. It's all next on This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. Hi again, everyone. I'm John Johnson, and welcome to This Week in High School Sports. You may not know that Pickford's athletic history is highlighted by a national record. 27 straight M.H.S.E.A. boys track and field championships from 1952 to 1978 under legendary coach Webster Morrison. But 40 years after that streak, folks certainly now know about a Panther football team that's ready to knock down the door and give the school its first gridiron title. Pickford hasn't lost an eight-player football game in two years and has reached the playoff semifinals in each of the last two years, losing to eventual champions Powers North Central and Crystal Falls Forest Park. And these Panthers are a junior later bunch that's off to a 7-0 and start, outscoring its opponents by an average of 40 points per game. Here's Coach Josh Rader. This year we got quick defense the, the balance, uh, attack as far as on-offense goes. You know, we were able to you know, pass
2: the ball and throw the ball, which you know, which is a huge advantage. And, you know, in football, defenses are at a
3: disadvantage because you can do multiple things, it really put a lot of pressure on them. Junior quarterback Jimmy Story has accounted for 30 touchdowns this season, throwing for 23 of them, and running back Steven Laboth and Matthew Bush lead the rushing attack, each averaging 10 yards per carry. The Panthers can clinch the Great Lakes Eight-Man East Division title this week with a win over Brimley. Our MHSAA TV game balls this week go out to last week's girls' tennis champions in the Upper Peninsula. Nagani won its fifth straight championship in Division I, with Marquette finishing second, and Ishbeming Westwood won its third straight Division II title, topping runner-up West Iron County for the second straight year by a single point. Back with more in a moment, you're listening to This Week in High School Sports. Do you need money for college?
0: Michigan Student Aid is Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. They administer scholarships, grants, college savings programs, and other resources that help make college accessible, affordable, and achievable for you. See how they can help you today by visiting Michigan.gov slash MyStudentAid and connect with Michigan Student Aid on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram.
3: Our weekly Be The Referee feature takes a look at the fine art of officiating with Sam Davis. Game officials at all levels have a lot of responsibilities, but there are some critical things that take place in local high school games where officials don't have the authority that some folks think they do. Let's start with injuries, specifically concussions. Concussion management starts and ends with the local school. If an official suspects a concussion or any injury, all he or she can do is notify the coach of the team. The school makes a decision about whether or not a player stays in the game. We often get calls about whether or not an official is responsible for enforcing MHSAA handbook rules. Again, it's up to the school which agrees to follow and enforce the rules when joining the association. Even if the official suspects an ineligible player is in the game, it's not his or her role to enforce that rule. It's all on the school. Thanks, Sam. You can be a referee. Go online now to MHSAA.com to register. Let's finish this week with a dive into the history books, into what is football's ultimate trilogy. A team that was undefeated, untied, and unscored upon. It's something that's happened 17 times going back to 1905 in Michigan, and the last time it took place was 45 years ago, when a team still considered to be one of the greatest of all time, the 1973 Saginaw Arthur Hill 11, achieved the ultimate level of perfection. Coach George Eiler's team averaged over a point a minute in going 9-0 that season and had an awesome one-two punch of quarterback Ron Rummel and running back Terry Urich, who went on to solid college careers at Central Michigan and Notre Dame. Holt had turned the trick the previous year, 1972, but then you had to go back to the 50s where Portland, Reese, Charlevoix, and Caledonia turned the trick. In the 40s, it was Morenci, Mount Pleasant, North Muskegon, and Millington. And then Escanaba, Constantine, Boyne City and old Kalamazoo State High in the 30s. And before that, Grand Rapids Union, Port Huron, Lake Odessa and Bay City Eastern and Kalamazoo Central all hit the trilogy. It's a lot harder, probably impossible to pull off now in the playoff era. And in fact, only one team since Arthur Hill, that was Dearborn in 1995, has gone to a regular season undefeated and not yielding a point. So there's your history lesson as we hit week eight of the 2018 football season. You've been listening to This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, a production of the MHSAA Network. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm John Johnson. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks again to the MHSAA. Kind enough to supply us with their weekly message. Once again, you can hear that during the sports pen every Tuesday right here on ESPN-UP. Well, that does it for my hour. As always, I appreciate you being with me. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. We're back on tomorrow as we are every weekday from 4 to 5 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP mobile app. Don't forget, if you missed any part of today's show, you can go back to our mobile app and go on demand. You can get live broadcasts from this, Friday and Saturday coaches shows, game broadcast. You can hear us live, get connected on social media as well. Once again, I'm Tanner Hoops thanking you for being with us. Hope you have a great rest of your Tuesday. We'll talk at you tomorrow.